thankful for uh, all those who uh, lead us in uh, worship, and um, especially uh, uh, nice to have our youth involved in the uh, worship this morning. <clears throat> well, last week uh, I told you that um, I was going to preach a message called Why There is a Hell, and so I waited until the coldest day of the year to uh, address this uh, hot topic. Now, um, and if you have your Bible, uh, I want you to look with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Uh, several years ago, the headline of a newspaper read this, it may be harder to get to hell this year. And this article continues, says it may be harder to get to hell this year. A bridge on the main road leading to hell, Michigan, is badly in need of repair. It is a project that could close the road for three months. And the article said uh, that business owners in town fear that the disruption in traffic could force some stores into bankruptcy. Jim Lee, the president of the Hell Chamber of Commerce, said it could close the whole town. Officials acknowledge that the repair work will cause some disruption, but insist that the plans to fix the road to hell are paved with good intentions. It further says the road has suffered great damage each time hell freezes over. Now that's the end of the article. Then you say, well, why would anybody name a town hell? Well, there's some uncertainty. Nobody really knows. Uh, some think it was that it was actually a, a German word that sounds a lot like our English uh, 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 word hell, uh, but it has a totally different meaning. Others think that the town was named hell as a joke, and it just stuck. And so nobody really knows. But, you know, I'll tell you that today, you see, hell has become a joke. And you can even see from the article, you know, we're very uncomfortable with the subject of hell and we kind of laugh and, and, and make uh, a light of it. Uh, sometimes even people ask me, you know, what are you preaching on? So I'm preaching on hell. They just come, well, they laugh because it's kind of uncomfortable. Psychologists tell us that when we don't know how to, you know, deal with something uh, that we're uncomfortable with it, that we often make it into a joke to kind of relieve the, the tension and the stress. And certainly many people today have, have made light of hell. Now, on the other hand, there are many people that just out and out reject the doctrine of hell. They say there could not be a hell. We don't believe in that at all. But I want you to know that hell is a biblical teaching. Hell is a Christian teaching. Hell is a Jesus teaching. And in the pages of the New Testament, we find that Jesus himself spoke more about the issue of hell than anyone else. And we're going to look at a passage today in which Jesus himself uh, pictures for us a very graphic uh, picture of, of hell. And it's a familiar passage here in Luke chapter 16. Now, there's some uh, dispute as to whether this passage is, represents uh, an actual event, a, a, an account of an actual event, or whether it's a parable. But let me tell you, it doesn't really matter. Because a parable, by its very nature, is intended to teach us spiritual reality. Oftentimes, they teach us a reality that we can't see any other way. And so what Jesus says here is spiritual reality. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take your Bibles and to stand with me. And we're going to be looking at uh, uh, Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor name, man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. 
Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in, in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. And those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are are so grateful for the word of God. We're so thankful that you have given us a revelation of spiritual things, Lord, that we cannot see in the world in which we live. Thank you for showing us these things. We, we, Lord, we, we confess that it's, that it's difficult to, to think about, to contemplate. But God, we, we thank you that you've told us the whole truth, that you tell us uh, reality. And Lord, I, I pray that as we think about this, this, this idea, this moment, why there is a hell, uh, that Lord, your spirit would direct us and give us the understanding that we need. We pray that you use it uh, to motivate some to turn to you in faith and trust you. We pray that you would use it to, for some to motivate them to share the gospel with lost family and friends. And for the, all of it, we pray, would honor and glorify you in your greatness and goodness. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you. As we look at this passage today, I want to call your attention to three truths that Jesus revealed about hell. You understand that this is an incredibly... um, uh, rich passage. It overflows with truth. So there's no way that we can get to everything that it talks about. But there are some very important things that I believe that God would have us to see this morning. And the first uh, truth, the first reality is that, that Jesus shows us is that hell is an actual place. It's an actual place. God wants us to understand that. He wants us to understand that it is not a figment of someone's imagination, that it's not an empty threat that God makes to try to get people to step into line, that, it's, uh, that it is not a scare tactic that, that preachers use to salt and pepper their, their sermons, but that hell is really an actual place. And the Bible tells us that there were two men. One was rich, one was poor. And one of them lived this, this very lavish life. Uh, it's, as it says, he, he had all of his good things in that time. And the other one lived a very miserable and difficult life. But at the end of their lives, they both died. And one of those men went into a place called paradise, and one of those men went into a place called Hades. And we kind of pick up with that here in verse 22. And he says, now, uh, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, that term only appears here in the gospel of Luke, Abraham's bosom. And but it's a, it's a, a picture. It's a, it's a picture of a place of blessing. Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. 
He was called a friend of God. He was the one who, he said, through whom God would bless the entire world. So all the blessings of God flow through Abraham. It's that place of, of blessing and comfort and of good things. And, uh, this is, uh, this is not the same as the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create where the new Jerusalem will come down and we will dwell with him forever. Uh, but it is a, a wonderful place in the presence of the Lord Jesus where saints go to await the beginning of eternity. And so this man, Lazarus, goes to uh, the, Abraham's bosom to a place called paradise. Then verse 22, the end of that verse picks up. He says, and the rich man also died and was buried. And it says in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So Jesus says this rich man, he goes to Hades. Hades is a word that simply refers to the realm of the dead. Now, it's not the same word as hell. In the Old Testament, the word that it translates is sheol. Again, it means the abode of the dead. It's the place where unsaved dead people go, awaiting to be judged eternally in hell. And Jesus says that, that he went to Hades and though this was not uh, this uh, eternal hell, it is indicative of the character and the nature of hell. And verse 23, in Hades, I notice, in Hades, it's a real place. He lifted up his eyes. That means that he's conscious. He, he's aware of what is going on. Being in torment, it's a place of torment. And it's also a distant place. He says, Abraham was far away. So hell is real. It's a place of conscious torment separated from God. And the Bible has a lot to say about the reality of hell. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and he comes from heaven, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's the judge. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is a picture of the believing and the unbelieving. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels were the original rebels who turned away from God. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The book of Revelation tells us a little bit more about this, about the devil. And the devil who deceived them, that is the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, those are not easy things to think about, but it is very clear that Jesus tells us that hell is a real place, a place of conscious torment forever and ever. Now, Jesus used the word Hades here in this passage. But oftentimes when Jesus spoke about this, he used the word hell. Uh, when Jesus used the word hell, he was using an Aramaic word that uh, translates Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, um, Gehenna describes the valley of Hinnom, which was west of Jerusalem. It was a place where the Hebrew people at one time had sacrificed their children to the uh, pagan god Molech, and they would actually offer them in fire. They would burn their own children as a sacrifice to this false god, as, as difficult as that is to imagine. 
And 2 Kings uh, chapter 16 tells us that King Ahaz, you remember he was an unbelieving king, he did not follow the ways of his ancestor David. But he followed the example of the, of the wicked kings of Israel who had begun to imitate the, the practices, the religious practices of the pagan nations around them. And so he is following suit and, and worshiping Molech. And he even offered his own son in sacrifice, in fire, in the valley of Hinnom. But then there was the good king Josiah. And when, uh, and when he arose to power in Judah, basically he desecrated the valley of Hinnom. And he turned it into a kind of a, a rubbish heap, a place where all the refuse of Jerusalem was taken, was carried, and it was, uh, it was burned there in that place. It just became a, a huge dump of refuse. And Jesus kind of uses this picture to help us understand the kind of the nature of hell. It's a place of, uh, where refuse goes, that, that which has been rejected. It's a place where uh, the worm never dies. The maggots and the worms are always eating away at that which is decaying. And it's a place where the fires never quench. The fires were constantly burning up the, the garbage that was there. And so Jesus has described for us hell as an actual place. Now, that always raises a question for us. You know, um, if hell is an actual place, why would God send anyone to such a place that we've described here? How could, how could that be? You know, if God loves people, why is there a hell? Well, there are people say that, that actually they say, well, there couldn't be a hell. Because God just couldn't do that. He couldn't allow anybody to suffer like that. And the logic kind of goes like this. Well, well God loves people. And, and love never hurts anyone. So if God is love, then God could never hurt anyone. He could have never especially allow them to be hurt eternally like that. Now, I think it's important for us as we as we think about this, to understand that, that oftentimes our tendency is to respond to these things that we hear from our own um, um, emotional perspective. And we have a tendency to react to those things and, and to see it uh, not from a revelation standpoint, but from our own, own feelings about it. But there is a world of difference between the perfect love of God and the sentimental love of human beings. There is a, there's a huge difference between healthy love and an unhealthy love. Now, let's just imagine that uh, someone, uh, a child, brings home a report card with an F on it. And the parents look at that and they see that. And in a, in a healthy home, the parents are going to take some action. I mean, they're going to, first of all, they're going to try to understand what has happened, why this child is failing, what's been going on. And then they're going to do, begin to, to take, uh, help this child take responsibility, personal responsibility, for improving their grades. Now, they may institute some punishments. They may put some restrictions on You know, you can't uh, stay up and, and play video games anymore. They may, they may even have to send that child to summer school. They may have to hire a tutor. But ultimately, they're going to put the responsibility for that child improving their grades on that child. You see, that's a healthy love. But in an unhealthy love, a child brings home that report card. The parents look at it, and they just react. And they pick up the phone, call the, the teacher, and say, What have you done? Uh, my Nellie is not an F child. How did you ever, she ever get an F? You know, uh, she can't get the, an F. It's, it's not her fault. It's your fault. And they further, they go on, and if I don't get some resolve from you, I'm going to the principal. If I don't get it from the principal, I'm going to the school board, and on and on. Because you see, that's really uh, an unhealthy uh, love, because what it's doing is it's taking the responsibility off of the child, the personal responsibility off the child, and it's putting it somewhere else. 
in some way. So the parent is behaving in an irresponsible way, protecting the child, trying to remove the consequences of failing behavior. Now, you understand, this is an imperfect analogy, a really imperfect analogy. But God created you and me with the ability to choose. And it's a gift that God allows us to make a choice. Um, He doesn't make us robots. He doesn't make us do his will. But he gives us a choice to do that. And in the choice that God gives us, there is inherent the possibility of consequences, the possibility of judgment, and even the possibility of hell. Um, There are consequences for those who reject God and continue in sin. And the Bible tells us that in our sinfulness, we have rejected God. See, there are things that we think There are things that we say, there are things that we do that displease God. And by doing, saying, doing, thinking that way, you see, we reject God. Now, the Apostle Paul describes this very clearly in Romans chapter 3 when he he quotes the Old Testament. This is not the New Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, there is none righteous. No, not even one. That right there is enough to put the nail in the coffin, isn't it? There is none who understands. Do you believe that? See, we sit here trying to understand some of the things that God has revealed, but none of us, we don't really get it. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Christians today ought to underline that that verse. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not a single person on planet earth that is good. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, if you've got any doubt whatsoever that there is none good, all you have to do is listen to what people say. Because it comes out of the heart and it comes spewing out of the mouth all kinds of evil and ugly and vile things and deceptive things, untruthful things, uh, blasphemous things. It just comes pouring right up out of the heart through the mouth into the world which we live. And verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Man, the opportunity comes, they're right on it. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The unbelieving world, you know what they think of hell? It's a joke. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You see, it's when people fear God, have a healthy fear of God, that it becomes a motivation for us to turn away from our sin and to turn to God. But when we have an unhealthy view of God and of our sin, what do we do? We put the blame somewhere else. We put the responsibility somewhere else, or we totally deny it. We make it a joke. The Word of God is clear that every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has turned away from God. And God is loving. God is merciful. And he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. But at the same time, God is also holy. And he is righteous. And he is just. And in his holiness, he cannot tolerate sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You see, those who are, are in wickedness cannot enter into God's presence. God can't look on it. And, 
and God in his righteousness, because God is righteous, he's, because he is just, he must punish sin. If he doesn't punish sin, then he is not just. And Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving uh, iniquity and, trans- and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty. God wants to forgive you. God wants to restore you. But he will not by any means just overlook your sin. Hell's an actual place where sin is punished. And there are people dying and going there every day. About 150,000 people every day. So hell is an actual place, but hell is also an agonizing place. Verse 23 says, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He said, well, why is hell such an agonizing place? Well, at least two reasons. One, there is no mercy in hell. There's no mercy in hell. Look at verse 24. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. What's he want? Mercy. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now understand, there is, there is mercy available to you right now. What mercy is when you give someone something that they don't deserve. There's mercy available to you. If you cry out to God, you know what God will do? God will forgive you. God will save you. God will restore you. God will do whatever you need in, in, in your life. But in hell, then it's too late. There, aren't, there is no more mercy available. And you see, this man who once ignored Lazarus as he sat begging for the crumbs that fell from his table, now is himself crying out for mercy. But there is no mercy in hell. This man is experiencing conscious physical torment emotional torment, spiritual torment. And he says, just, just let Abraham, Father Abraham, just, just let Lazarus come and dip the tip of his finger in some water to cool off my tongue. I'm not asking for an ocean of water. I'm not asking for a river of water. I'm not even asking for a cup of water. All I'm asking for is what water he can fit on the tip of his finger. I'm just asking for that much mercy. But there is no mercy in hell. He says, for I am in agony, this flame. I would welcome even a millisecond of relief. But friend, there is no relief. There is no second chance. And and that brings us to this this other idea. You see, there is no mercy in hell and there is no hope in hell. Verse 26, between us and you, there's a great chasm fix so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. There's this great chasm fix. There's this great separation between the unbelieving and the believing. And it's fixed, that it's permanent. And nobody can get from here to there. Nobody can come from there back and forth. It can't happen. You see, there's no hope. There's no second chance. There's no new other opportunities. It's separation, eternal separation from God, from God's light, from God's life. There's no hope in hell. How does, how does Jesus describe it? Torment, flames, agony. You understand? He's not using hyperbole. He's not using an exaggeration. But he is simply telling us that this is really an agonizing place. 
Jesus says that, that hell is so agonizing that you would do well to do anything necessary, anything necessary to escape it. In fact, he says in Mark chapter 9, he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go, to go into hell into an unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47 and verse 48, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says it's worth doing anything to escape hell. I mean, if your right hand is causing you to do something you should not do, you would be better off to cut it off. If your, if your foot is taking you somewhere that's sinful that you should not be going, you're better to cut it off. If your eye is causing you to look at something that you should not look at, you'd be better just to pluck it out. It's, it's a radical, radical approach. Why, well, now, why does Jesus give us such a radical understanding of this? Because of our sinful nature. You see, it's revealed in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Do you understand that all of us, are prone to make lay claim on what we want right now. We all want what we want today. Our selfishness. And we and we that's our tendency. And that's why he's telling us, listen, this is not your best life now. This is a life full of sin. Your best life has come is when you are with God. In a wonderful place. You know, one of the most agonizing things about hell will be when we remember. He says, remember, child? You remember when in this life you had it all? See, hell is going to be filled with people remembering the things that they, they did and the decisions and choices that they made. And it's just going to kind of boil over and over with regret. Why did I do that? Why didn't I make that choice? I think, uh, have you ever had that morning after feeling where you wake up thinking about uh, a decision or something that you did the the night before, the day before? Have you ever had that time when you you think about the choices that you made even many years ago that you just, just... it still just grieves you and you think, oh, oh God, if I could just change that. If it could just be different. If I hadn't made that choice. Now, you see, in this life, oftentimes those feelings can actually produce something good. Because when you wake up feeling like that, you have an opportunity to go and try to make things right with someone or of some circumstance. When you, when you wake up realizing that in relation to God, you can call upon him and you can ask him to forgive you and, and you can be restored and healed. But in hell, all it just becomes a part of the agony to remember, to regret, and to be able to do nothing about it because there is no hope in hell. Now, people are going to remember what they've done. They're going to remember what they've rejected. People that remember sitting in a church service like this and hearing a message about the gospel and saying no. And they'll play that over and over and over. That day, God was working in my heart. God was convicting me. God was calling me. And I said no. I said, no, I, did, I made a decision to be different. 
Hell is an agonizing place. She said, why is there such an agonizing eternal punishment? I mean, why not something less? Why not something that lasts for a while and then is terminated? Well, you know, there are a lot of people that, that hold that belief. There, there's a view that's called the terminal punishment view. And they say, well, that, yeah, people do go to hell and they are punished uh, because it's in the Bible. But they take words like eternal destruction and they say, well, that, but it means that at the end of that, God annihilates them. They just cease to exist. That's really, really what the Bible says. The Bible says they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And there are people that believe that you get a second chance. Uh, there's a Catholic teaching called purgatory that believes that you go into uh, uh, a, a hell-like state where you are being tormented, but you have the opportunity to make things right, to be restored. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in hell there is no hope. He says, so why would there? Why would God do that? Let me tell you. Here's why. It's because of the seriousness of sin. God would be less than God if he did not punish sin with anything less than eternal punishment. Do you know that God is an eternal being? And did you know that God created you as an eternal being? You will spend eternity somewhere. And there's only two options. There's eternal life and there is eternal death. And when we are believers, then we are taking the option of eternal life. And we are transformed into the perfect likeness of God. We are, we are accredited with, God, with God's perfect righteousness. But when we reject God, you know what the Bible says, we are at enmity with God. We make ourselves enemies of God. For how long? Forever. We turn away, and when we become enemies of God, we are punished as enemies of God. It's, it's a serious thing. You see, we do not take sin very seriously. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, These, these unbelieving, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Jesus is very clear. Eternal punishment is going to last as long as eternal life. Those are the two options. In 1905, Norway abolished its death penalty. And they got rid of it completely. But in 1940 to 1945, um, there, was a, there was a man by the name of Vidkum, V-I-D-K-U-N, Quisling, who uh, was the governor of Norway. And during these year, years, he uh, conspired with the Nazi uh, regime to bleed his country of money and resources, hoping that it was going to allow him to take a position of dictator over that, over that nation. And he betrayed his own people. He committed treason against his own nation. And, and in Norway today, if you go there, if you said the name Quisling, it would be synonymous with traitor. It would be like Judas uh, to the Jews. It would be like Benedict Arnold to the American. It, 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 Quisling became known as the, as the Hitler of Norway. And after the war, when he uh, was uh, tried... It was determined that he had killed so many people, betrayed so many people, that their laws didn't have a punishment severe enough to take his case into account. And so what did they do? Well, they reinstated the death penalty and applied it to Quisling because they said there was nothing in their laws that was adequate to punish the sin of this man. You see, sin is treason against holy God. Sin is turning from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. Sin is going to the kingdom of darkness to get your way, to get what you want in life. It's a rebellion against God himself. 
You're a traitor to the kingdom of light. Living life for your own selfish purposes. You know what God does? God says there's a penalty for that. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. That death is eternal separation from God in hell. God would be less than God. God would be less than good. God would be less than righteous. He would be less than holy if he did not punish sin. In our day, think about it, uh, the ability to tolerate sin has become a virtue. If you can see sin and, and turn your head or, or even uh, uh, compliment it, then you're considered a virtuous person, a good person. But let me tell you, looking at sin and approving of it is not an indication of your virtue. It's an indication of your fallenness. And as believers, when we see sin, we should be, we should be hurt by it. We should be deeply affected by it. We should even be angry at it because sin hurts other people. Our own sin hurts other people. And other people's sin hurts other people. And it hurts God most of all. Sin is against God. You know, we become a tolerant age and, and people think that they're greater Christians because they become more tolerant of sin we are becoming less like God, not more like God. And when you're not disturbed by sin, that is not a good sign. The reality of hell reminds us how serious sin is. And hell is an actual place. Hell is an agonizing place. And hell is an avoidable place. I mean, we can kind of stop right there, take a deep breath and say, thank you, God. Hell is an avoidable place. See, when the rich man came to the realization that he would never leave this place, something changed. Suddenly he becomes concerned about his family. And he says in verse 27, and he said to them, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that they may warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. You know, you know what he's saying in essence? He's saying it would take a supernatural intervention to get my brothers to believe do you know any people like that? Did you feel like, well, it, man, it'd just take a supernatural invention to get them to believe? Let me tell you what, it will. Only God can bring about faith. In verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now listen, Jesus is, is telling us that the Bible, that the Old Testament scriptures are sufficient to bring a person to salvation. You can read the Old Testament, you can hear the Moses and the prophets, and you know enough to get saved. So it says. And you see, uh, he says uh, in verse 30, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now let me remind you that there was another person by the name of Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead and then Jesus later raised himself from the dead. So they had their sign. Did they believe? No. No. See, why is that? It's because unbelief is at heart a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. It's not, well, you've got to prove to me that somebody can raise from the dead. The problem is, is in our heart, we don't want to believe that because that would mean that we have to make a change. I don't want to accept that. And see, that's why Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Only the Word of God is sufficient to bring about salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, unto everyone who believes. So you see, hell is an avoidable place. And here's why. 
Because Jesus Christ suffered the torture and the judgment that you deserve when he was on the cross. There on the cross, he took your hell. And he tells us in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in a very real way, Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, took upon himself our hell. He took our torture. He took our separation from God. He took it upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin, which is death. And then he rose from the dead, showing that he is more powerful than sin and death. You know, I I, I can't understand that. I don't understand how uh, eternal, holy God the Father and the eternal God the Son can be separated. But somehow, as the Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And in that moment, he took our hell, our torment, and our separation and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. The cross of Jesus Christ, you see, is at the, in the very same moment, it's the, most, it's the greatest representation we have of hell and the greatest representation we have of God's love. Standing in the very same place, in the very moment, God's love and God's punishment hand in hand. John 3, 16, so familiar. Talks about God's love, right? For God so Love the world. But did you know that hell is in that verse? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not what? Perish. What do you think that is? Perish in hell. But have eternal life. You see, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the love of God coming and dealing with the reality of hell. Why would God allow his son to go to the cross and experience all of that if there is no hell? If there is no penalty, it would be absolutely foolishness. It would be futility. It would empty the cross of all of its meaning. What are you being saved from? Are you being saved from your purposelessness in life, from your lack of meaning? What are you being saved from? Friend, when you turn to Christ, you are being saved from hell, from eternal punishment. Imagine if you just found out that you have a rare terminal disease. And you sit down to talk to your doctor about it, and he tells you about this disease and you say well well is there any hope and he says well um there is there is one thing that you can do and and the good news is that if you will do this you will you will be absolutely completely healed and free of this disease forever and let me let me tell you about it and he says oh wait a minute right there doc i'm sorry but um I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm understanding all these big words that you're using. And besides, the ball game's going to be on in about 15 minutes. I, I need to get out here and, and go check that out. And I'll catch you a little later. Know what you're going to say? Or, oh, I see what you're doing. Trying to scare me, huh? Using these scare tactics, making me think I'm going to die. You want to get all my money. You want me to have to go through all these expensive treatments. You, you want to rake in the dough. Man, I, I know you're kind. I don't have anything to do with that. Is that what you're going to say? Or are you going to say, what is it that I can do? What is it? What is the hope? Tell me. See, that's oftentimes the way people look at, at the idea of hell. That, you know, this is boring. I don't want to 
hear about this stuff. It's all religion. Uh, it's, man, it's scare tactics. Uh, get people to do what they wanted to do, control them. Uh, trying to get their money. Friends, it's none of that. Jesus is offering us eternal life. Eternal life. Freedom from the judgment of our sin. And I would say to you, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, today you need to do that. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Say, yes, God. And you can, you can call on him. You can ask God. You can call upon his mercy. And you can say, God, I know that I have sinned. I know it. I know I've broken your law. I know I've, I've committed treason against you. But I also believe that you love me. I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I call upon you to forgive me and give me your eternal life. Now, it's that simple. Now, it's not easy, but it's simple. And if you're willing to do that, you can have eternal life today. And for some of us, we're sitting here listening to these things, and maybe someone you love, maybe someone you care about comes to your mind. And maybe you're thinking, God, I, 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 need, to, I need your courage today to go talk to them. I need your, I need, I, Lord, I need to begin to pray for them. I, I need to be diligent about this, serious about this, to pray for them, and then to seek opportunity to talk to them about this hope that's in Jesus. I don't know, maybe there's something else that God is talking to you about in the midst of this. He has a way of doing that. Sometimes things I haven't even talked about, he, his spirit deals with us. But this morning, we, we want to respond to God and be obedient to him. And so in just a moment, we're going to pray and we're going to have an invitation song. And during that time, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to God and to, to, to respond to what he says to you. So, Father, we, we 